0: All right, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. Anybody know what chapter we have made it to? Chapter twenty-one, chapter twenty-one, chapter twenty-one. Right. We worked through chapter twenty on Sunday night. Did pretty good. I think we covered most of everything. Remember in in Jeremiah chapter twenty, anybody remember what happened? Jeremiah is arrested and all the things that happened to him. Okay, all right. Yeah, all of that. So we talked about, uh, I think, some important concepts here tonight. We come to chapter 21. And uh, if you'll look, how many verses in chapter 21? 14. So this should be about 15 minutes long. And we should be done before you know it. Okay, now uh, we're going to debate it how we wanted to approach this. There's a couple of sections where I think it's... It's where you kind of want to just run to, but instead of doing that, we're going to do a little bit of work here at the beginning and just maybe try, we haven't really done a lot of work on time frames or time stamps or anything in the book. Let's do a little bit of work on that and we'll use chapter one maybe as a place to kind of just, so that we can get started and we'll just see what happens. Maybe this will work, maybe it will not, but we'll try, all right? First thing we see, Jeremiah chapter 21, verse one, what do we see that is coming over and over and over? The word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord. Once again, reminding us over and over and over that it's God's word, not Jeremiah's word, okay? The word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah. So let's do this. Go back to the beginning of the book. Go back to Jeremiah chapter one. All right, everybody there? Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priest, that were in Anathoth, the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of... Make sure you write these names down. You ready? Number one. The word came into the days of... Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of... Jehoiakim, right, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem, captive in the fifth month. So when does Jeremiah's ministry begin? We just we just read it. Does it give us anything specific? In the thirteenth year of his reign. Does everybody see that? To whom the word of the Lord came into the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year. Everyone grab a Bible dictionary, look up Josiah, and tell me how, when, when did he start his reign, when did it end his reign, and then identify which year would be the thirteenth year. That's it, yep, Josiah. Page 708 in the Bible Dictionary, all right? Everybody look it up. And you guys figure it out. It's numbers, so I'm not even going to pretend to even try, okay? All right. I can just tell you where to look, right? There's a the name of two men in the Old Testament. I think you can probably figure out which one it's referring to, right? Okay. No years in the Bible Dictionary? Do we not have anything? Okay. All right. Does that help us any? Okay, he reigned 31 years. Okay. All right. He reigned 31 years. That's a a little bit of help, right? We, We don't know. Do we have a year when it begins or a year when it ends? You don't see one. Okay. Do you have anything in a study Bible? You have a study Bible with you. Do you have anything that gives the dates for Josiah? All right, six forty to six oh nine. All right, how many will? How, how? Everybody just feel comfortable going with that. Does that sound good. All right, so six forty to six oh nine. Thirteen years would be when. 27? 627. So write down, around 627 then, possibly, right? Because we we just looked at one source. We can vary. But let's say around 627, is that the 13th year? Okay, all right. Everyone seems to agree that he died in 609, okay, all right? And he reigned for how many years? 31, okay. All right, so... So we, we're, putting, we're putting possibly the 13th year at when? 627. Everybody feel halfway okay with that? If anyone online doesn't feel comfortable with that, you can, you can feel free to tell us that we're wrong, okay? All right? So there is Josiah. Who's the next king? Jehoiakim, right? Everybody see that? He came also in the days of Jehoiakim. When did Jehoiakim begin reigning? And how long did he reign? Jehoiakim. Now, you're going to look it up in the Bible dictionary first. Obviously, that's a good place to start. Do we... 609 to when? 598. Now, when did uh, uh, Jeremiah begin his ministry? Which is what year? 627. He obviously is ministering during that entire time. And he also ministers during the time of which king? Jehoiakim, his ministry or his reign ends when? 598. So 627 to 598 is how long? You are the math people, not me. How long? 29? Okay. Does everybody feel comfortable with that? All right. Now, who's the next one? Zedekiah. He also... Uh, Uh, So Jehoiakim, unto the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem uh, captive in the 5th month. So when does Zedekiah come on the scene? 597. Okay. And in the 11th year, right? What does it say here about the 11th year? Unto the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah. Right? So does that mean Zedekiah was reigning for 11 years? Right? Is that about right? Okay, so when Zedekiah comes on the scene, when Zedekiah comes on the scene, how long has Jeremiah been preaching and ministering to the people? 30 years, right? 30 years? Everybody feel comfortable with that? 30 years, okay? So he'd been ministering for how long? 30 years. I, I want you to write that down. He'd been ministering for how long? 30 years. What has he accomplished in those 30 years from a human perspective? Okay, let's just say it, let's just be blunt. From a human perspective, he's accomplished absolutely nothing. Okay, not a thing from a human perspective, right? Are people listening to him? Are people following? Are people listening to his message? In fact, in the very last chapter, what happened to him? Yeah, he got persecuted. 30 years Thirty years, like I want you to put that, like, like, it's easy to just put that number down on paper and go, well, big deal. Can you imagine for thirty years ministering and you see nothing? You're, ju- you want to just give up? That that puts it in a much more human context, does it not? All right, I, I want to make. I just thought that would be very important to try to. I think I think that's a relative. I know we kind of just threw that together, but I think I think it's a relatively accurate uh, representation. Of, of of about how long he'd been ministering 30 years and that's just that should just make you go wow that's that is crazy now go back to Jeremiah 21 yeah at that point yeah yeah you, you can add then the rest of the time yeah he preached a total of 40 years So 40 years. But at this point, I just want you to see, at this point in the book, we're now, who's, who's on the scene? Zedekiah. Because look at Jeremiah 21.1. The word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah. So Zedekiah is on the scene. He's reigning. So this is at least 30 years of ministry. Now, let's do this. Bible dictionary. Let's look up Zedekiah. Now, let's just look up some information about Zedekiah. 13.35. We've got dates on him. Now, let's just try to get an idea of what's going on, right? Let's get a little bit of information about this king that's come on the scene. Because maybe this will offer a little bit of help. Now, I could give you a little summary, but it's more fun for you to see it for yourself. All right? Now, when we look up Zedekiah, there's how many men in the Bible named Zedekiah? Zedekiah. There's five. Which entry is the one we're looking for? Entry number two, all right? The last king of Judah. The last king of Judah. Meaning what? Jeremiah has been ministering for how long? 30 years. What's getting ready to happen? Judah is about to go into Babylonian captivity, Right? So in other words, that all of that ministry is not stopping what? The inevitable Babylonian captivity. And that raises some serious questions, but we won't, we won't try to get into those right now. Okay, so, but, uh, so the last king of Judah, 597 to 586. The son of Josiah, right? and you know that name from where? Jeremiah chapter 1. Okay, very good, right? Zedekiah was successor to Jehoiachin. I always say Jehoi Jehoiachin just to make sure we d- d- make a distinguish- distinction from whom? Jehoiakim, right? Okay, all right. As king, right? And then we have we have the scriptures there. After Jehoiachin, all right, had reigned only 3 months, he was deposed and carried off to Babylonia, right? Now, who, who, who steps in? Nebuchadnezzar installed whom? Zedekiah on the throne as a puppet king and made him swear an oath he would do what? Remain loyal. And who was he to remain loyal to? Nebuchadnezzar, right? And Nebuchadnezzar was in charge of whom? Babylon, okay, all right, you're worrying me there for a second, okay, all right, Zedekiah's original name was Mataniah, but Nebuchadnezzar renamed him to demonstrate his authority over him and his ownership of him, although Zedekiah reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years, he was never fully accepted as their king by the people of Judah, because Zedekiah was a Weak and indecisive ruler, he faced constant political unrest. Almost from the, fir- uh, from the first, he appeared restless about his oath to loyalty to Babylon. Although he reaffirmed that commitment in the fourth year of his reign. However, and they look where they tell us to look for that. Jeremiah 51, okay, which may, means what? That sometimes this book is not in... Chronological order, right. However, he was under constant pressure from his advisors to revolt and to look to Egypt for help. So, uh, please note, hey, revolt against Babylon and look to who for help? Egypt. Who would they not look to for help? The Lord. And I look, I know it's easy for us to talk a big game. It's easy for us to talk a big game. But we're, and when you're in a situation like that, we constantly look for other things for help, do we not? So we, we got we to gotta make sure we just at least, you know, honest here. Okay, but what happens? All right? so he's told to constantly look to Egypt for help, right? A new coalition composed of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Phoenicia was forming against Babylon, Babylonia, and they urged Judah to join. Adding to the general unrest was the message of false prophets who declared that the yoke of Babylon had been broken. Jeremiah chapter 28. So in other words, he's getting all kinds of messages. And he's concerned. He's, he's, he probably doesn't know what to do. People don't like him. People don't see. He, he may even feel guilty for signing, going along with Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, next next paragraph. In his ninth year, Zedekiah revolted against Babylonia. King Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah, besieged Jerusalem. While Jerusalem was under siege, other Judean cities were falling to the Babylonians. The final months of siege were desperate times for Zedekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The king made frequent call, frequent calls on the prophet Jeremiah, seeking an encouraging, encouraging message. Now stop right there. Let's just don't read anymore. Don't read ahead. Don't read ahead. Now go back to Jeremiah 21. All right, because this gets us, this kind of sets up the scene, does it not? Now, the only other thing we really need to do is, I, and I'm not going to go into great detail here. I was going to go into all detail with all of these names. Uh, Zedekiah sends someone. Who does he send? Pasher, the son of Malchiah. Everybody see that? Have you heard the name Pasher before? Okay, good. It's not the same pasture as in which chapter? Chapter 20. Two different individuals, okay? All right. Now, we can do a lot of work here, but the main thing is he sends him, uh, and he is the son of Messiah the priest, saying, I inquire, inquire, I pray thee, of the Lord for us. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, maketh war against us, if so be that the Lord will deal with us according to all his wondrous works that he may go up from us. So what is what does he need? What is he, what is he looking for here? Looking for information. He's looking for help, right? And what does he want this person to do? It's right there. It's open book. What? what? Zedekiah sends whom? Pasher. And and Zephaniah, the son of Masher, the priest, saying, Inquire, I pray thee, of the Lord. Who is asking whom to inquire? Zedekiah Zedekiah is asking, right? Okay, through Pasher. And what is he asking to be done? To inquire of the Lord. And what does he need to know? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, maketh war against us. If so be that the Lord will deal with us according to all his wondrous works that he may go up from us. What is he, he's, he he wants to know what? That God's gonna help us. God's gonna, it's got some, what's gonna happen here? He needs to know. Because we've already just read in the dictionary that Zedekiah is facing what? A lot of turmoil, a lot of conflict. He doesn't know what to do. He's got all kinds of messages. So he sends, Now, again, let's make sure we have that clearly broken down because I don't want to make sure there's any confusion. All right. So, the word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent unto... Next word. Unto him. So, the word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent unto him. Who is sent? Someone is sent to whom? Jeremiah. All right, everybody got that? And who is sent to him? Pasher, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest So who, they go to whom? Jeremiah. Jeremiah, and they want Jeremiah to do what? An inquire of the Lord. Okay, I want to just make sure we got that because I felt like there was possibly some confusion there. Alright, they want Jeremiah to pray. Now, that, as a student, you should stop here. Does that sound kind of odd to you all of a sudden? I mean, just in the very last chapter, what was happening? Well, about Babylon all this time. Down the yeah. And now Babylon going, and they're like, Do you think maybe that's the reason why? I'm just saying, as a Bible student, don't you stop here and go, wait, what just happened? I mean, just look at the last chapter. Doesn't it seem like an odd, major shift? Now, the question is, how many years has passed, right? Because, yeah, all of it. We know now, who's. do we know who's the king in the previous chapter? Had, had, years, had years passed? I'm just, I'm just throwing up. Look, these are the kind of things you're supposed to look for as, as a Bible student. So I just like to point, I try to point these out to just make you look deeper into the text. Instead of just giving you some little basic summary that I can read in a paragraph. I can't stand that. Yeah, it's a different pasture. Yeah. Right. So I'm saying there could be but whatever happens something's changed because all of a sudden Zedekiah's on the scene. Do this. Look at uh look in uh, look up the word Zedekiah and see is, is Zedekiah's name used between 1 chapter 1 and chapter 21. We know it's used in chapter 1, right? Is it used in 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 11 12? 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. You know, I like to get you thinking and looking and questioning and working. and. Right. Well, We're going to look it up and just see. I don't think you're going to find his name mentioned. After chapter 21 is mentioned, Right. And that's it? Okay. Okay, 24. Okay, okay, I knew after. Okay, I knew after. In between. So I'm just saying, he's not mentioned, and all of a sudden we come to 21, and who's there? And not only is he there, he's what? Raining. He's reigning. And not only that, we know there's been about how, how many years have passed since Jer- uh, Jeremiah started his ministry. About thirty, so we know that thirty years has passed now we don't know what this is, we know it's not in perfect chronological order, we know that, right, but I'm just saying all of a sudden, Zedekiah is on the scene, and Zedekiah is like, "Go ask Jeremiah, and maybe, maybe it could be, yeah yeah. But no, he, he sends these people to Jeremiah. Or, do we have a disagreement here? The, the, word, the word which came unto Jeremiah. Says, the, uh, the right, but I'm saying he's, he, he sends these people to Jeremiah for Jeremiah to inquire of the Lord. Well, right. Right, but I'm saying the, the text says, sent unto him. Zedekiah sent unto Jeremiah. Or am I misunderstanding? Is, is that sent unto Jeremiah? Right. It's sent unto Jeremiah, and then he sends, who does he send to him? Pasher, Zephaniah. And they say, inquire, I pray thee, inquire, I pray thee, of the Lord for us. So they go ask him to pray for us. We seek some information. Now what's interesting is, who, who are these individuals? Pasher the son of Melchiah and Zephaniah the son of Messiah the priest. Wait a minute. Why did they go to him? Don't, instead of going to the priest, they go to Jeremiah, which it just seems something has massively changed here, right? Stephen may be right, because he's been, if he's been warning him of the Babylonians, now all of a sudden the Babylonians seem to be at the door, and they're like, Well, who's been talking about the Babylonians? that crazy guy okay maybe he's on to something i don't know i just find it fascinating from just a reading standpoint that whoa what just happened in the last chapter is getting beat now they're like hey hey remember that guy we beat up let's let's go let's go get him right well they say inquire i pray thee of the lord for us for nebuchadnezzar king of babylon maketh war against us if so be that the lord will deal with Us, according to all his wonderful works, that he may go up from us. Okay, they want to know. They they want. They need some information for whom? Us, right? They there. I say. So what happens now? now, So there's kind of the. We can call whatever you want to call that the verses one through two. Clearly, Zedekiah is seeking help. He's pleading for help. Right? Okay. What happens in verse three? Then said Jeremiah unto them, Thus shall ye say to Zedekiah. Who is he speaking to? Pasher and Zephaniah. Now he's replying to them. And they are to now take the message back to whom? Zedekiah. Verse 4. Thus said the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war. Now stop right there. Just stop right there. At first when you hear that, that sounds good, doesn't it? Just stop right there. As soon as they hear that, they're having to be like, yeah, he's going to turn back the weapons of war. They're immediately, what do you think they th- they're thinking? God's with us and he's going to turn back the, Babylon- the Babylonians, right? All right, yeah. But what does Jeremiah go on to say here? We're going to turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, wherewith ye fight against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans, which besiege you without the walls, and I will assemble them in the midst of this city. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You go ask God for help, and God says, the help I'm going to give you is I'm going to turn, basically, I'm going to turn against your weapons. And he's going to do what? How does the NIV uh, translate in verse uh, four? Uh, it says, I'm about to turn against you the weapons of okay. war that are in your hands, which are you are using to fight against the Babylon, king of Babylon, and the Babylonians who are outside the wall of the city. Okay. I gather them inside the midst of this city. Your weapons are not gonna work, and I'm bringing them in to the city. Can you imagine asking God for help? And then that's the message. Now, <laughs> oh, I know, oh, I know, I know. But just right here, can you imagine? They're like, why did we come ask this guy? this guy is a lunatic, right? No. Hey, can we beat him some more? Like who, who came up with this message, right? And then look at the next part. And verse five, and I myself, who's the I? That's God. Myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and in fury and in great wrath. I'm going to fight against you. Well, wait a minute. We were coming to you for help. Well, you're going to get help. Now, immediately, this raises a question, this raises a serious question about prayer. This raises a serious question about prayer, right? When we pray, do we really seek what God God's will is, or do we seek what we want? And let's be honest, most of the time we seek what we want. I'll say it again. I, I I, I know this goes against the mindset of most people, but here's the way I really believe it works. And I, I think it's a theological truth. Prayer was never decide, designed to change God. Prayer was designed to change us. And by coming to God, the focus is that we are seeking God. We are not seeking us. We are seeking God's will, not our will. We're seeking God's thoughts, not our thoughts. The whole point of prayer is to make us God-minded, not self-minded. It's to focus on what God would want. We can tell God what we want, but the point is, is to seek God, that God would change us, not that we would change God. All right? And th- this is a pretty good example of that. All right? what, what happens here? Verse 6. I will smite the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die for a great pestilence. All right. Clearly, we're right back to the message of judgment, are we not? All right. Now, verse seven. All right. So we kind of have the plea. I don't. We, we can have. We can say uh, verses one two, two is the prayer. And verses three, four, six is the shocking answer. Right? Okay. That's a shocking answer, is it not? All right, verse 7, what happens in verse 7? And afterwards, saith the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants, and the people, as such as are left in this city from the pestilence, from the sword, and from the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those that seek their life. And he shall smite them with the edge of the sword, and he shall not spare them, neither have pity, nor have mercy." So anyone left in the city, what's going to happen to them? We're going to captivity to die. Is that not what it says? He's going to kill everybody. Right? Everybody see that? Just make sure. If you if you disagree, let me know. This, this is a very key verse here. we got to make sure we got this down. I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants, and the people and such as are left in the city from the pestilence, from the sword, from the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into his hand their enemies, and into the hand of those that seek their life. And he shall smite them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them, neither have pity nor have mercy. Sounding like what's getting ready to happen. They're going to die. Verse 8. And unto the people thou shalt say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Now he's got a message here. We got a message. Hey, to the king, tell him, Hey, I'm not helping you. God's going to fight against you. And everyone left in the city, you're going to die. But to the people, I have my message. There's two ways. What are the two ways? One is the way of... One is the life and one is the way of death. Everybody see that? Now look at verse 9. He that abideth in this city shall die by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. And he that goeth out and falleth to the Chaldeans that besiege you, he shall live and his life shall be unto him for a prey. That is the most ridiculous, crazy, Thing I've ever heard in my entire life. You're inside a, a city. What do the cities have around them at this time? Walls. What else do you have? Hopefully some kind of military. He says, if you stay inside the security of the city, you're going to die. Don't do that. Leave the city and go walking towards the very people who are coming to kill you and you will live. Is that not the most insane thing you have ever heard? Now, come on, let's let's take it back. Now, is this a historical narrative? Yes. So we always got to be careful with things, right? But what do I always say about historical narratives? What do I always say about historical narratives from a hermeneutical standpoint? Well, they'll give you all the facts, but if you ever see something in a historical narrative that seems to make no sense, stop and start thinking about it, because this makes absolutely no sense, right? I mean, does God have to say, stay and you'll die, leave and you'll live, right? He could have just said, they're going to come in, they're going to take you, and you're going to go to captivity, but no, if you stay within the fortress of the city, within the protection of the city, you're going to die. So what you have to do is be willing to give up the protection of the city to go to the very one that is coming to kill you. I believe, uh, well, we can look it up. Let's verify. Because I, I don't want to, I don't want to. Okay, I don't want to say, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't, if, you, if let's verify. Uh, the verse we've just been looking at? The, verse 9? Just so that you know, I'll just read from one source, just because for some, those listening online, if you, if you didn't hear, someone asked the question, are the Chaldeans and the Babylonians the same? Cal, the Chaldeans is the usual term for the Babylonians. Okay, all right. So you're going out to whom? The Babylonians, Okay. All right, I, just, I want you to just stop. I'm going to keep saying it until someone goes, ooh, okay. All right, so far, I don't think you're getting it. There's a historical narrative, but the historical narrative makes no sense from any way looking at it, right? God could have just had them come in. He's going to take you captive, and you're going to go. But all of a sudden, it's like, no, 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 no. If you stay within the protection, you're going to die. Leave the protection, go out to the very one bringing judgment to you, and you will live. That is the craziest thing I have ever heard. There's two ways, right? Now, Jesus picks up this two way idea, does he not? What does Jesus pick up the two ways idea? Well, find it. We know it's in the gospel. Well, you can find it in the Gospel of Matthew, and I have a strong feeling it's probably somewhere around maybe chapter seven. Who can find it? Find it. The two ways that Jesus talks about. Who can find it? We got to hurry. We're going to run out of time. We're going to run out of time. Right. Seven thirteen. Everybody, everybody, familiar with this passage? Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter ye in the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth into life, and few that be that find it. There's two ways. The way that makes sense would be which way? The wide gate. Because it's big, it's wide, right? And there's many on it. He's like, no, 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 that's the wrong way. The right way is the straight gate, which probably doesn't seem to make sense because there's few that's on it. So when I think about this, I just want you to consider this, all right? Because all, a, a lot of times we talk about, well, we, do we have to find the road? How do we find the right way? How? Here's the thing. And I, I think in a very powerful way, we're given a very beautiful concept here. That the way of death is there within the supposed walls of protection they can stay because what would what would be your in, uh, your thoughts to stay at that city protection fight protect yourself right you would do, do so or you may even think i could stay here and surrender right It would make more sense because at least I'm like, put up a white flag. I don't know if that worked at that time, but put up some kind of message saying, hey, we're going to stay here. Here, we're throwing our swords and everything over the wall. We're good to go. But God's like, no, staying in the city, you're dying. So you've got to be like, okay, what am I going to do? Come on, kids. We're going. Where are we going? We're leaving the city. Where are we going? Towards the Babylonians. Toward, wait, we're going to go towards the people who are coming to kill us? Yeah, they would, if, the kids would be like, you're dumb. <laughs> I'm staying with someone else, right? Nobody would think that's the right thing to do. But in a beautiful picture, is this not in a roundabout way, the way salvation really works? We can't stay within the quote-unquote protection of our own good works, our own good deeds, or what we can or cannot do. We have to leave all of the supposed protection of good works, our own righteousness, and we have to run to whom? The one who's coming to kill us. And we have to rely on, can can they bring anything to the Chaldeans? Can they bring anything to, there's nothing. In fact, we know how bad the siege gets, right? We've already talked about it. People, cannibalism, killing, I mean, they're starving, there's famine. They're not coming out there going, oh, they're going to bring us all of this good stuff. They're coming destitute, empty-handed, possibly starving, weak. And you're, and you're to bring all of that to the ones who are supposed to destroy you. And what does God say is going to happen? You'll live. You can either stay in the security of your own righteousness, your own good works, your own good deeds, and guess what? The one who you will stand in front of, you are going to face eternal death. Or you can flee and say, I'm going to run to the one and bring what? I'm going to bring absolutely nothing. I have no good deeds, no good works, no good righteousness. I'm going to throw myself at your mercy, and then I will live. That's a beautiful picture of that. And Jesus constantly says, what? No good works. No good deeds. No good works. No good deeds. Who do you look to? I mean, the same kind of concept happened in in Exodus, did it not? Snakes were biting them, right? What was happening when the snakes bit them? They would die. The snake was supposed to be put on a A pole and lift it up, the medical symbol, right? It's the medical symbol that we use, right? It's what, if you ever had a medical patch, that's what's on it. And they were to look to what? The very thing that was killing them. Who would do that? You would think what would be the smart thing to do? Kill the snakes, right? But don't kill the snakes. Look to the snake and you will be healed. Don't fight the Chaldeans. Go to the Chaldeans. The one who is our judge, the one who condemns us, is the one we have to go to. And what do we take? Not a thing. Other than our sins. Other than our condemnation. And then we will live. That is a powerful picture. Look, in a historical context, it makes no sense. This is one of those historical narratives where every good student should be like, what? Does God God really need them to go out to be saved? No. They could have just came in and got them. But the people who are going to stay there are going to be most likely the people who are going to try to do what? Fight. They're going to use their own effort, their own works. They're going to be relying on the works of their hands if they built the city, right? They're going to be relying on themselves. And guess what's going to happen when they rely on themselves? They're going to die. And the other people are to forgo all of the security, any possible provision, any weapon, and to go walk and not don't go fight. He doesn't say go fight them. What does he say to do? Falleth to the Chaldeans. In a sense, you just kind of fall into them, right? He shall live and his life shall be unto him for a prey. For I have set my face against the city for evil, not for good, saith the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. What's going to happen to the city? The place of security is going to be what? Destroyed. And this is what I think. When, guess what? You can stay in your city. You can maintain your righteousness, and it's all going to burn with fire because your righteousness before a holy God is going to burn up. You have to go to the, you have to fall into God because there's nothing else. To me, it's, look, someone, someone can argue, no, we should not interpret that way. I'm sorry. When the historical narrative is so out of like, wait, that makes no sense. You have to at least question what's going on here. There has to be a reason he, what is he telling them? And think about it. Even in the most literal historical sense, what is he forcing them to do? He's forcing them to forgo every earthly security and trust him. Even in the most literal way, that's what it's saying. And spiritually, that fits perfectly with everything we know. And people always want to bring in our works. We want to bring our efforts. You hold on to your works and your efforts. It's going to burn up. And then what does he say here at the end? And touching the house of the king of Judah, say, Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of David. Thus saith the Lord, execute judgment in the morning, deliver him that is spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go out like fire and burn, that none can quench it because of the evils of your doings. Behold, I am against thee, O inhabitants of the valley and rock of the plain, saith the Lord, which say, Who shall come down against us or who shall enter into our habitation? But I will... Punish you according to the feud of your doings, say the Lord, and I will kindle a fire and the force thereof, and it shall devour all things round about it. Now oh, God will punish us according to our doings. And if we, he punishes us according to our do, doings, and the same concept shows up in the New Testament, we're going to be judged according to our works. And which means we would all be, we're all going to buy, die. We're all going to be burned up. So what's our only hope? We need a different kind of work. And the only way we can get that is we have to just run to him and rely on him to give us what we need because we don't have anything to bring. But people want to add our works and add our works. And, add, and that's why when people say sanctification proves justification, they're out of their ever-living mind. Your sanctification can never prove justification. That's a false gospel. It's false doctrine. Because if your, if your sanctification proves your justification, then that somehow proves that you're justified based on what you do. And if you're even remotely honest with yourself, the great the, I don't care who you are, how great your sanctification is, all I got to do is put it next to the holiness of God. And what happens to that sanctification? <laughs> because God demands perfection. So stop looking to your sanctification. Stop looking to your actions and run to the one who's judging you and say, I have nothing to bring you. And God has to provide then for you. And those people who go out, they're going to live. And the ones who stay are going to die. It makes no sense from a human perspective. It makes no sense. No sense at all. You would think, no, why are we going to go out there? We have no protection. We have no provision. We have no nothing. And God's like, nope, that's where you go. I, I'm telling you, if, that, if, if, if you don't see the beauty in that, if you don't see the picture and I, I don't know what else I can do. That is powerful and awesome. And, well, we'll just stop right there because I don't know what else I can say. I mean, that's the end of the chapter. That's the end of the chapter. But, I mean, that is much to meditate on. That is much to meditate on. And it, but it fits perfectly in so many other situations, does it not? I mean, the New Testament is constantly, not your works, not your works, not your works. Not your. No one will be justified in the sight of God according to our works. Not by works of the law. No, no, no. You've got to abandon that. And, and, and you can even see many times in the life of Israel, they felt somehow protected by the law. Hey, we're children of Abraham. We have the law. Hey, I thank thee, God, that I'm not like them. Or like, and guess what? They're never justified. And it's the one who did what? Lord, I have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I have nothing. I've failed you in this way, in this way, in this way. And who went home justified? The man who couldn't even look to heaven. The other one's saying, hey, Lord, look at all these things I do and don't do. He's, in a sense, staying in the city. The other one left the city and ran to God and said, I got nothing. It's that, that, that idea carries out. It goes all the way back early on, all the way through the Bible. And I think here in a historical narrative, God just tells them to do something that is so counterintuitive, goes against everything we would think, but I think it it gives a great picture. All right, so we'll stop there. Lord God, we come before you this evening. We thank you for a historical narrative that shines a light on how salvation, I think, actually occurs. We can cling to the things that we find security in or we can forsake them and come to you with nothing and live. Forgive us for the times we cling to things for security like our own works and our own righteousness. But Lord, let us never forget that they will burn up. And the only thing that will last is the perfect righteousness of your son imputed to us by faith alone. And we thank you for that. And it's in his name we pray. And God's people said,